0: This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Dan Finnamore at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing very well. Can you please explain why I'm here, this beautiful exhibition I just looked at?
1: Well, the show is called Impressionists on the Water, and it focuses on uh, late 19th century French views of the sea, rivers, coastal views, uh, harbors, that sort of thing, and how the Impressionists utilized that subject matter for
0: their own purposes. Mm-hmm. And oh, I want to get into some of the artists and the artwork, Impressionism in general. One thing came to mind, Manet, when, he was one of the, what they call the fathers of Impressionism. Um, I didn't see any works by him.
1: There's a wonderful print in, in the show yeah. right, of, by Manet. Manet was an interesting character because Uh, He was very knowledgeable about seafaring and actually chose that as his initial career direction, but only uh, decided to become an artist after he sat for and failed the exam for the Naval Academy twice.
0: Wow. Wow. Good for us. That's (laughs) true. Yeah. I want to ask you personally, how did you get involved in the whole museum side, the curating, and what's your background? Well, strangely
1: enough, um, there are people in the museum world, I'm a good example of them, who know what they want to do from the very earliest years. One of my earliest childhood memories is of standing in the Museum of Natural History in New York City looking up at the giant squid. I don't know how old I was, but it's
0: permanently emblazoned in my mind. I would think so. Yeah,
1: and so I always knew I wanted to be a museum curator, and when I went to graduate school, all of my professors thought, oh, well, that's cute. That's really nice, but you'll really
0: become an academic like me, Uh Uh, but I stuck to it. Really? Wow. And is this the first museum you worked at, or have you been to other museums? No, Theater I have. Museum? I've. This is my place.
1: I've worked here really? for a long time, and um, I feel like
0: I've worked in five different museums because
1: uh-huh. when I first arrived, this was before our expansion, even before our merger. And I think it's. I, I really treasure those early years, although I wouldn't want to be working in that museum today because it was truly a nineteenth-century way of doing things. I got the glimpse of the last vestiges of the old style of of running a museum. I saw it, I appreciated it, but um, then things moved on from there and we've had wonderful uh, new opportunities based in looking to the future and and reorganization that has been uh, very helpful uh, for me to really expand uh, my vision and my goals as a curator to create larger exhibitions, more ambitious exhibitions that reach a much larger audience.
0: Um, I love this museum. It's one of my favorite museums. My second uh, podcast here I believe I mentioned a little bit about the history, but this is a very old museum uh, compared to all of them in the country, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, we say it's the oldest continuously operated museum in the country. It was founded in 1799 uh, by sea captains. You either had to be a master or a supercargo, which was the chief businessman on board a ship, uh, a ship that had departed Salem but had rounded one of the capes. So Mm. had gone out of the Atlantic Ocean, rounded Cape Horn, rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and had entered the Indian Ocean of the Pacific. So that was a fairly rarefied group of people, but that was the sort of trade that Salem uh, ship captains specialized in right after the Revolution. Because you can imagine during – the when Massachusetts was a colony of Britain, there was a protected sort of trade with other British colonies and uh, British – ports and when the revolution came about all of that was disassembled and not only that but they weren't allowed to for a certain period of time trade with those places so they needed to go find new trading partners and Mm. they found them in the pacific in the pacific islands on the west coast of south america and north america and ultimately in india in southeast asia uh, and in
0: china wow now are there any pieces that are actually original to the museum that are still here We have something like 5,000 objects in
1: the collection that were brought back by the sailors uh, who were members of the society. One of the bylaws of the society was that you needed to record in your log uh, your activities and then share your log with other sailors who might want to... Replicate your voyage so they knew who to trade with, who not to trade with, even down to the level of where the dangerous uncharted ports were when you're entering a harbor in the Marquesas Islands. Be careful to look out for these headlands or whatnot. Um, But they also were required to bring back what they called curiosities, natural and artificial curiosities, natural curiosities being objects of natural history. And uh, artificial being man made objects, artifacts, often cases, works of art, uh, but these represented the cultures, the peoples that they encountered along the way. so what we ended up with was a worldwide diversity of objects of various sorts from um, that that represent that moment in time from the eighteenth century uh, into the middle of the nineteenth century, but also people were collecting what they considered to be antiques at the time, some of them were considered brand new. Mm. One could consider them contemporary art of their day. Uh, And so it's a wide swath of objects, some of which have become um, very important because of that type of documentation. You can imagine uh, in a place like the Marquesas Islands, for instance, where uh, colonial activities pretty much destroyed the indigenous culture by 1840, there was no art making in those islands. Uh, After that time, American ships, including Salem vessels were sailing in there, and, and it, was this, it was the members of the East Indian Marine Society that were collecting things from the Marquesan islanders, and sometimes recording in their journals the interaction that took place, what they traded them for, what the significance of these objects might have been to the people who made them. And uh, then we have the name of the ship, we know when it was returned, we know it when it came into the uh, museum collection. So our accession book is actually a record of some of the most important, some of the most important documentation for parts of the world where they are sort of without history. They don't have their mm-hmm. own historical narratives of art making, or, wow. or And so this museum collection, we're able to document a trajectory for uh, stylistic change and that sort of thing.
0: Now, are those logs available for the public to look at, or are they in archives? We do have a museum
1: archive and the library. We've recently moved to another location because we're renovating the building, but Mm -hmm. the library is open to the public. And it can be accessed on the website, and you can get the location, and you can contact them for the hours. I heartily encourage people to. They do have open hours, but I, if you have something specific to look at, I always suggest people contact a librarian in advance uh, because it's, a, it's an active place, and there are untold treasures in that library. Sounds I, I not like overemphasize it. that.
0: And what a great research source.
1: Yes. I have spent – all, if I added up all the hours that I have spent in that <laughs> library, it yeah. would come to a pretty impressive, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, a pretty impressive number.
0: Yeah. Getting back to the exhibition, what are the dates, first of all? We'll open the show to the public
1: on Saturday, November the 9th, and it will run until February the 17th.
0: Wow, nice, nice long span there. And um, before we talk about the particular artists, and which are very interesting and some of the best artwork that I've seen in a long, long time. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Impressionism because, you know, I mean, I've grown up in the antique and art business and all that. And, you know, I heard said through perhaps my father or uncle, whoever it was, Impressionism came about to fight against photography and and portraits and things like that, um, that the artists were losing their commissions and work to the whole genre of photography. Is there any truth to that? I'm sure that in an anecdotal way, there are artists who
1: felt that way. But I know that storyline, and I'm not quite comfortable with it anymore, Mm -hmm. Uh, largely because in recent years, people have explored the Impressionists' interest in photography. And many of them were as active in the field of fine art photography as they were in painting. They were very interested Mm. in visual culture generally, whether Mm. it was printmaking, etchings, lithography, chromolithography, painting, watercolors, oils. Uh, I don't know that they felt threatened in any direction. There was a movement in the middle of the 19th century that a lot of the Impressionists embraced, which involved the restoration of printmaking, specifically etchings and lithographs. back into the world of fine arts because they felt that they had been corrupted by advertising and they were viewed as commercial arts and they wanted to restore their position as uh, respectable fine arts as well. Uh, Photography always had a dual role. One knows there was fine art photographers and there were commercial photographers as as there are today. Um, But I'm not sure the Impressionist painters felt oppressed by photographers. I know they felt oppressed by... Um, other formal art traditions uh, in Mm -hmm. France, particularly the Academy and and their style of work, Beaux-Arts painting.
0: Is there any type of crossover between Impressionism and the Barbizon school? Well, the Barbizon painters were interested in
1: plein air painting. Mm They're directly from nature. And the Impressionists certainly embraced that level of realism. What they were thinking of in terms of realism was – the sort of realism <clears throat> of a particular moment in time, what they saw while standing on the shore, and the reflections, more so than the Barbizon people were. So there is certainly overlap. They they were aware of one another's work, and I think the Impressionists grew out of that uh, embracing of realism as seen through direct observation.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I know the, the the exhibition focuses on the waterfront and water in general, canals, things like that, uh, and Monet had a little studio boat, and a few other people did. I think that's fascinating. I never realized that they actually painted right from their boat, which was actually a lot of them were covered in canvas or like a little house, and they had a back window and would sit there and paint. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, it's a fascinating concept, um, and it's folded into the whole notion of uh, realism. You want to people to know that what you are painting you have actually seen, that there are a few steps, there are a few stages in the process between observation and creation of the final work. The fewer the better, I think, was one of the ways the Impressionists viewed it. And so to sit in a studio boat was one way of eliminating multiple steps. You wanted a water view. You wanted that perspective of sitting there on the water. And the lower the angle towards the water, the more reflections that you would get and the more of the, the types of images that the Impressionists valued. But at the same time, a lot of these studio boats were utilized to the west of Paris in the suburban stretches of waterway where there were pleasure gardens, there were casinos, there were big hotels where people were having luncheon parties on the lawns, and where all sorts of what um, people might have have viewed as debauched behavior went on. (laughs) And so to have a boat on the water which one had a little bit of privacy in, was also a, a nice uh, in way to engage um, company on a weekend. And so you would get these this notion of, of indoor-outdoor kinds of, of lifestyles, and a lot of these paintings actually uh, embrace those views as well. We see images of uh, men and women together in these boats, and one can imagine that in formal Parisian society, there often weren't that many opportunities to be alone uh, mm. with with another person.
0: Now, who was the one that chronicled the uh, by through etchings his voyage and his uh, his time on his cabin with his cabin boy and the whole thing? Who was that that did that?
1: Charles Daubigny was a realist painter, and mm-hmm. in the eighteen fifties uh, he began the idea of getting out there onto the water. And in the early eighteen sixties, he created this series of etchings in which. Um, he documented his own experience on the water. A couple of weeks spent in his uh, floating studio, he basically took a very nondescript river barge, probably used to haul cargo or something, and had somebody build a cabin on top of it. And they stocked it with necessities, his painting supplies, his food, a bed, uh, very rudimentary stuff, a tea kettle and that sort of thing. And then he and a cabin boy headed out onto the rivers and painted the views that he saw. But the etchings that he created that document his own experience are somewhat self-referential and humorous. So it isn't Mm -hmm. a declaration of the importance of his work solely. It's also sort of poking fun at the experience. Uh, So there's a lot of humor in the series, Uh, excellent etching, top quality work. Yes, I saw that, yeah. They're very engaging pieces.
0: Now, did he also do paintings uh, uh, during that same trip? I think the goal was
1: the finished oil
0: paintings, and this mm-hmm. was created as he went along on
1: the side. And, and I think these were created, the engravings, the etchings themselves were created after the fact um, as a, um, a record of his experience. Uh, the, they were bound into a volume, uh, but they're not really a tight narrative so you don't have to start at number one and read your way through. Each one of them also stands on their own as a beautiful uh, etching, one of which shows Daubigny himself sitting in the stern of his studio boat looking out at the water. And you can see his view of the water. You can see the uh, painting, the, the uh, easel that he's working on. You can see all of the tools that surrounded him, all of his necessary equipment. And The etching is designed in a very formal Rembrandt-esque sort of fashion so that um, he's referencing his own work, the tradition of etching, the realism that uh, people always associate with Rembrandt and uh, trying to uh, co-opt a bit of that for himself.
0: Yeah. I'll talk a little bit about the Rembrandt painting that is featured here as well. But that was great to see the Matisse crossover. Um, he was like more on his way to the modern art movement, and but he he met up with Pizarro. Um, has just a thought has occurred to me: Has it was anyone in like the impressionist movement start out say academic work, and then they went into an impressionism, and then moved into another type of movement other than Matisse? I know Matisse just lightly touched on impressionism, right? He came a little bit too late to
1: be a pure Impressionist. Mm -hmm. He had his encounters with them, but then he moved quickly into Fauvism and some of this very brightly um, colored work. And then he – we know his trajectory took him right into the 1950s. Uh, So he had a glancing blow with the Impressionists. But many of them, um, once they developed their style and Impressionism, didn't really – Uh, move out of it. There's certainly lots of explorations of various degrees of it, uh, and certainly Monet is an example of that because some of his earliest works show very formal training as a draftsman, Mm -hmm. uh, and and some of his paintings were very much in in a more realist tradition, and then he moves. and, And even throughout the course of his life, you would look at a painting and say, that's pure Impressionism, and it might be from the 1870s, and then something else which looks a lot more formal that is even later than that. Hmm. So so he kind of floated back and forth the time took him you know where where he wanted to go depending on the subject and no doubt his mood.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had heard uh, maybe just one of those rumors you hear but he used to actually bring his paints into a museum or gallery because he never felt like his paintings were finished. Did you ever hear anything about that? I don't know that story, but <laughs> yeah. it sounds dangerous. As yeah. a museum
1: curator, I would
0: <laughs> raise the hackles. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, I noticed uh, the beautiful Renoir, and on these paintings there's a type of glass for protection, but it's, it's you can't tell there's glass on these paintings until you, until you hit it at an angle or something. Is this something new in the museum? The world of... of protective
1: glass has come a very long way in the last 10 or 20 years. It used to be that if you put a piece of plexi between the viewer and the painting, you deadened the painting. You destroyed it. Uh, But particularly Europeans are interested in protecting their paintings that way, and there's much, much better quality protective glass now than there ever used to be. And if you light it right, it essentially disappears. So I think most people who walk by that Renoir won't even notice there's anything in front of it. Uh, that painting comes to us from the National Gallery of Art in Washington, which part of its mission is to bring great art to the American people. So their mission involves lending works like that to us. It's a very generous loan. It's a spectacular painting. I'm thrilled that it's here. And they need to have some sense of, of uh, security that they are also stewarding their collection properly. And so they use that sort of glass. And some museums do, um, but many don't as well. Mm-hmm. Would you consider that the one of the most important paintings? Well, visually it's a star because <laughs> yeah. Renoir used such vivid colors in that and mm-hmm. such richness and and his characteristic feathery kind of brush strokes so the painting comes alive in a way that it's pretty hard to compete with mm. uh, the subject matter is also central to the theme of the show it's a, a, a three people standing on the shore including a woman in a long dress next to a rowing gig at Chateau, which is just to the west of Paris, where a lot of uh, pleasure rowing activities took place. And uh, it's a large format work, so it's easy to say it's one of the stars of the show. Uh, It's a very important painting, but I would also point my finger at quite a few others as well. So it's a matter of personal taste.
0: And the last part of the exhibition, Gustav Kaibart? Kaibart. 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 Wonderful works. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And... Quite a story. Can you kind of tell the audience what about the artist? Kaibot is an
1: under-recognized uh, player in the Impressionist circle. He was critical to the success of the Impressionist movement, but he was also a very complex guy because he had many interests, uh, in, including painting, but also gardening, very dedicated as a gardener, and sailing and yacht design and eventually yacht construction, so much so that he started out as a painter, uh, but he eventually left painting in order to design boats, build boats, race boats, run the yacht club in Paris, um, get involved in maritime activities. But he's so perfect for this exhibition because his knowledge was so deep in the maritime world and his skill was so consummate in the painting world that the expressions in these very large confident paintings, I think it's fair to say, oh, yes. is unique and is really is an exclamation point uh, to the theme of the show. Kaibat was a fascinating guy who uh, was a patron of many of the other Impressionists. He, he exhibited in several of the shows himself, but he also helped support the other Impressionists. Often when no one else would buy their works, he was buying
0: their works So he started out as a person of means yes yes mm-hmm.
1: with the family estate in Genevillier to the uh, west of Paris and he would support them giving them places to paint and uh, he, he actually uh, hired. one of the spaces. He paid the rent on one of the exhibition galleries during the 1870s in one of those spaces. So that his interest in their work was not passing at all. He was one of them, and he was doing everything he could to help support the movement. Uh, And then gradually his interests evolved towards uh, boat design. He designed 25 different versions of sailing yachts, of Seine River sailing yachts. Uh, There is something called the Kaibot Rule, of racing. Uh, It involves 30 square meters of sail area, but all these boats would have to conform to a rule that he devised in order to race against one another. Uh, Very, very interesting directions, multiple directions. He ended up as the secretary of the Circle du Wall uh, in the the yacht club uh, in the river
0: area there. Mm. Did he ever paint again or when he was finished was he just finished? I don't know. I, I think that he probably painted throughout his life but stopped exhibiting
1: his works. Yeah. And I do know that um, there are many of his works that have not really seen uh, public view. They might have stayed in um, families uh, in, in Europe. Uh, we have um, sort of just come to recognize how significant he is as a, in his role of the Impressionist. There have been shows about Kaibat, But how much of his work is actually maritime in nature uh, has been a surprise uh, to many people. So I think he's uh, an artist that still has um, a lot of potential potential. Uh, for recognition of his of his importance, yeah. even though specialists in the field have really turned to him uh, and, and now know how influential he was. I think in terms of the public, there's still a long way to go in that regard. And visually, his paintings are so striking. They are. Uh, they're yeah. largely because of the contrasts within them. You have pure Impressionists. You've got this watery, swirling mass of color and reflections of vegetation. Often you don't actually even see the vegetation on the far bank. You have a steep angle looking down into the water and just this color... A massing, roiling of reflections, and then it's being sliced across by, with great exactitude, by the hull of a boat, mm-hmm. whether it's a rowing boat or whether it's a, a sailing vessel. He was very interested in presenting these boats with high level of accuracy, and the experience of being on these very protected waters uh, that way. Whether or not he knew how he was differing from the rest of the impressionists or not, his work comes out uh, appearing quite distinct in that regard.
0: Yeah. Would you say that his work is perhaps your favorite? Do you want to say – you even want to commit to that?
1: It's pretty hard <laughs> uh, to embrace one of the artists over the others, but as a uh, somebody with a great affinity for maritime painting, uh, he's an easy guy to love. I have to say, and so and and he's his statements. Some of them are so grand; these large format canvases uh, that they're just they're wow pictures in a positive way. They're wonderful things. Um, Yeah, it's sure no problem. He's my favorite artist. In the show, my favorite artist. (laughs) He can say it.
0: Okay, at this moment, until I walk (laughs) into the
1: room with the Monets. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Is there anything else that you think would be an interesting topic? Well there are so many little interstices
1: in the show. There is a main narrative, but there are also lots of sidelines. We didn't take a narrow view of the exhibition topic to say this is a singular moment in time, but we set the show up to lead into the subject of impressionism by embracing a broader range of the French cultural heritage as it relates to maritime activity. So we'll see so in the show we've we've uh, put forth Earlier works of the Romantic tradition, of the sort of the Enlightenment tradition of didactic painting, some of the traditional marine art that people know about, and then also some of the wonderful things that spun out of the Impressionist movement, people who adopted the Impressionists' techniques but applied them to different purposes. And so in various corners of the show, there are, there are very eccentric works uh, some of them very humorous, some of them very disturbing, sort of symbolist in their uh, effect, but they all are either informed by the Impressionists or are uh, looking towards that direction. And so I, I, we look at this whole subject as a broader movement that had a, had an origin that grew out of an existing tradition and, and contributed towards uh, something uh, later on rather than just a lightning strike uh, in the art world.
0: Yeah. Uh a lot of times I like to talk about, like, behind the scenes because it's it's interesting. So what is it like to undertake something like this, this exhibition? It's a, it's a
1: very big job, of course. It's a very fun job. There are an awful lot of details. There's a large team of people who put together a show. Uh, as mm-hmm. the curator, I get to be the spokesperson for it, but I am anything but the only one. Uh, I am a leader in certain conceptual uh, design for a show like this, but there are a lot of people who make serious contributions towards it. And so these are the teams that you work with to deliver the exhibition, the design of the exhibition, the interpretive fabric of the exhibition, the educational goals, the interpretive media that are installed within it, and so many other aspects. Um, But I think it's also fair to say that in the outside world, not a lot of people know what a curator does. What do you do all day? <laughs> and even museum supporters and trustees and unfortunately sometimes directors don't really have a handle on what it takes to get something done. Um, and so I'm constantly questioned, why would it take so long <laughs> to do this? I had a, a avid supporter of the, of the department who was um, – he's a trustee of several museums. He loved what I do. But every time he would show up, maybe he'd have an idea. Why don't you hang this painting? i say, that's a good idea. And I'll, I'll get it up within the next year and a half. He's like, what do you mean year and a half? And he was like a New York real estate guy, and he wanted action. he you know all these museums, they work in three speeds, slow, slower, and stop. Because at the end of the day, he really didn't understand how sophisticated the operation is and what it took to get the label produced and confirmed as accurate and the painting conserved and uh, integrated into an educational plan and all of the things that you want to do correctly in order to maximize the experience of hanging a painting. So I I make light of it, but it really is a pretty complicated operation. Uh, But the process of organizing a show like this is at least a couple of years for those uh, curators who started the process. These were um, a a retired museum curator from the UK, uh, a Belgian maritime historian, and a retired museum director from the United States, they probably started a couple of years before that. You conceptualize, you start to develop a checklist, then you start to contact uh, potential lenders. Are they willing to lend? What kind of schedule would they be willing to lend it on? And you need partners in the process along the way, other museums that might want to contribute and also receive the show. In the end, of this exhibition uh, was conceived by the San Francisco Fine Arts Museums, and then it came to us. We reconfigured it dramatically for our New England audience. Um, and, but it, it's, it's
0: no big deal for a show to take four years. Right, right. And, uh, you know, you think of just the shipping and the handling, how careful you have to be for each and every piece. I mean, you personally can't even – you can't hang a painting. It's a process of the people that are supposed to hang the painting. Uh, you know, there's, it's, a team, it's a team job where things go. Uh, you probably do a storyboard of where you're going to lay things out and, and all that.
1: In the old days, I used to hang the paintings, and that was fun. And I'm yeah. glad I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> um, it, it's nice to be able to handle the objects, and it's nice to not have to worry about that. It, it, the jobs are all segmented in that yeah. regard. We use a sophisticated design program where we can place the works of art in a gallery and reconfigure that so we know we have so the density software? space. Yeah. It's so like AutoCAD, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we know what sort of educational points we want to make. We want to know what visual ju- uh, juxtapositions we want to make. And we play with those. Uh, but at the end of the day, those will get you 80% of the way there. And then you open the crates mm-hmm. and you take the artwork out and you place things in the gallery as – you see. So changes are made along that route. Shipping is a major, major endeavor uh, when you're shipping uh, a collection with values like this staggering numbers, which are meaningless, they're so high. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We never could have pulled a show off uh, to this extent if we didn't have an in- indemnity from the federal government that wow. is through NEH. So rather oh. than paying a, an insurance bill, the government agrees to indemnify the collection of artwork in case there's damage or theft or disaster of any sort. Uh, Otherwise, museums could not exchange works like this at all. And that's Uh, so important in my mind. It's fantastic. I mean it really is a major, major contribution that the public in general – it's a passive one because there isn't any actual cost. I don't know when the last time a claim was even made on a federal indemnity. I'm sure it happens occasionally. But usually it goes off not costing anybody anything. Um, But shipping the work across the country, we did it by planes and we did it by trucks. We have a very large rowing gig in the exhibition that came from France originally. Uh, It was put into a crate. Largely, the crate was there for the trip from the outer tip of Brittany to Paris because it's a very long drive and the roads are pretty bumpy. Wow.
0: That's like 20-some-odd feet long.
1: Yes. It's a very large boat. It came in a very large crate, which was (laughs) in a truck across the country rather than a truck. Uh, A lot of the pieces were flown across the country and then trucked into Salem. Uh, One of the trucks, uh, strangely enough, the one that had the boat on it that was coming Across the country, five days across the country, the drivers of the truck, the fine art shippers, were very pleased with themselves that they were making such good time. So much so, in fact, that they had cut 12 hours or something off of their trip, which was going to place them in Salem at about 10 p.m. on Thursday, October the 31st. (laughs) Halloween. <laughs> Halloween, where we get 100,000 people. Yeah, the biggest about place in the, streets, in the country for Halloween. And we said, don't do it. Slow down. Yeah. Drive slower. And they yeah. ended up showing up at uh, about 5 in the morning on uh, November the 1st. So everything was okay. But yeah. it took them a while to realize the implications of what we were saying. Yeah.
0: Don't do it. Yeah, of any place in the country. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great. And the website? PEM.org. PEM.org. P E M. Very easy. Well, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.